listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Pretty interesting. So here you are, my friend. Enjoy. Man, thanks. I need this. Man, that's legit. What's in this? It's easy, easy to make it home. You can make it yourself. It's three quarter ounce of vodka, three quarter ounce of triple set, three quarter ounce of lemon lime sodas. Enjoy, my friend. Thanks, man. Your name? Tony. Thanks, Tony. Chris, take care. We'll see you around. With me at the bar is Josh Feldman, VP of Security Architecture, Design, and Engineering for the Radiant Group. Josh spent most of his career at the DOD as a technical director where he developed a standard for cyber threat detection and impact analysis. He also co-authored the CISSP Study Guide, which I highly recommend for those looking to take the CISSP exam. Josh, welcome to Barcode. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. I have a... Uh... I have a statement from my legal team at my job that I must read. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent Radian or any Radian subsidiaries in any way, shape, or form. Understood. Thank you for that. So the last time we spoke was actually in Miami at the Ola Bar, and it wasn't long before the COVID pandemic really hit. How have you been coping since then? And how well were you prepared professionally with transitioning into a fully remote role? So what a great, you know, great way to kick off. Thank you. It's been difficult, but not unmanageable. So Radian promotes remote work in general because of the nature of the business that we're in. And we recently completed uh, about a two-year journey reconstructing the entire security program where we were really well positioned to go full-time remote because every employee had the option to work one to two days remote per week as it was. So we got lucky in that sense because we were uh, already had a good carve out and were prepared for that. We weren't entirely prepared. We certainly had some challenges uh, in order to get there, but our transition to 100% work from home, I marked that as a big success, big win for us. Now on the personal front, you know, I'm drinking more. <laughs> uh, I think we all are at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and I'm enjoying, I guess I was just sharing this with, a, with another friend of mine, my ability to get into fictional media, fictional story, movies, TV has diminished greatly, where uh-huh. within the first five minutes of watching almost anything fiction-based, 
I turn it off because I look at it and I go, that is not believable. And in some ways that's bad, but in other ways that's good because I'm enjoying more nonfiction, both books and media. So I've really gotten into a number of documentaries. I think I have two different PBS subscriptions right now. So I'm catching up on all the old Nova and nature programs. That's a great way for me to, to enjoy a little bit of mental time off. Um, nice, nice. Yeah, unless you're, you know, watching World War Z or something like that, then, then it almost has a... I a can't even do that. I used to enjoy the zombie genre. Now I can't stand it because really it's so hard for, you know, what's that uh, mechanism you need to have? The a willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah. That seems to be broken for me because I feel like what we're living in now is just so still a bit unbelievable for me that it's hard for me to pivot and not convince myself to believe in other things that are not believable. It's definitely hard to get a grip on reality right now. And also looking forward into the future, what lies ahead, it goes the same for technology. So you hear AI, ML, and when you look at security controls like application security, where do you see automation fit in? Do you think that AppSec will go iRobot on us at some point? Or do you think some level of human interaction will always be required? Probably the last five years, I've been fairly focused on specifically application security. That's where the majority of vulnerabilities live. That's the majority of the attack surface these days. The business backend systems are, if properly secured, if constructed appropriately, if you put in single sign-on, if you have your CASB in place, if you're protecting those business users from phishing attacks and drive-by malware, you know, applying a web content filter, you'll be okay. You'll protect the business backend. And who really cares if a business user one business user gets popped. Uh, not saying that that's not a good thing, especially if that's your CFO, that's particularly bad. But in general, when I compare the damages that could result from that type of uh, event compared to if someone sneaks in a ransomware dropper through either a badly configured AWS Lambda container or someone is able to identify an exploitable cross-site scripting flaw, that could take down an entire application, which most companies depend on those applications to either deliver products and services or collect revenue. And so that is, we're talking millions of dollars per day outage. That's really where the risks lie. When you couple that with the fact that most development shops, they are not truly developing code. Let's be honest here. Most quote unquote developers are assembling code. They're, they're understanding the business needs. They're combing the internet. They're going through Bitbucket. They're going through all of these 
potentially open source or even visual basic studio catalog of functions and they're assembling those apps to deliver on the business requirements. Well, who's securing that? It's not the developer. If the code compiles and it passes a smoke test and the functions (laughs) calculate the math correctly and it spits out the results that you were expecting, that's pretty much it. That's all you're going to get. And sadly, even the best application security automated scanning tools, my calculation is some of them are 30 to 40% false positive rate on findings. That means an intense amount of manual effort looking at those false positive, potential false positives to determine if they're real false positives or if they're, oh, wow, this is an actual flaw in code that needs to be remediated. And, oh, we determine through our testing that it's exploitable. Yeah. So there's always going to be a need for manual verification. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know a way around that with the push for so many companies to embrace a very rapid development of features. When I look at at the rate of feature development today compared to even three, three years ago, they used to have quarterly release schedules. Hey, we're going to, we're going to, create this button that does this really great calculation for our customers because we're getting a lot of customers that request this functionality and we're targeting next quarter, you know, by the end of Q4. Well, now in order to remain competitive, companies have to roll out those new features in a matter of weeks, Yeah, not quarters, yeah. not months. It's got to be in the next sprint. So that's driving the flaws in code way up. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to this that's either in the security field or is in security management, if you don't have your eye on flaws in code, uh, it's time to have an adult conversation (laughs) and get get some measurements in place. Use some tools to evaluate where you stand with cybersecurity moving at breakneck speed it shows no sign of slowing down anytime soon you know technical advances will become more complex and we as cyber professionals will need to continue becoming creative in our defense strategies has the social and cultural movement of today's society opened new attack vectors and is the public becoming more aware of this and if not then What can we do as professionals and advisors to instill that mindset in the next generation? Sure. I think we need to take a step back and I think we need to recognize and understand what motivates bad actors. If you don't understand a person, a group, even a nation state's motivations and what their target objectives are, then you don't understand the rules of the game. You don't understand what it is they're ultimately after. That's one of the primary disciplines of understanding the kill chain. 
that's a primary driver in understanding any uh, mission for cyber and information security. What is valuable? What do these bad actors want to do? If you go back in time to the 90s, when, when I got my start in cybersecurity, it was really for fun. There wasn't a lot of profit to be made. It started uh, probably in the late 90s, early, early 2000s, uh, where you saw a lot of political statements and a lot of political movements being driven through hacktivism, you know, those types of things where people wanted to come out and make media, make news by defacing websites or by redirecting or even copying a domain like, you know, whitehouse.com was, was well known uh, for hosting uh, porn, you know, pornography because they were able to capture that domain before the White House was able to, to grab it. Now those motivations have changed significantly. So I would say easily for the last 10 years, you had the nation state actors and you had the criminal actors. And criminal actors are in it for profit. And nation state actors are in it to advance nation state objectives. And both of those organizations are extremely well-talented, well-funded, and uh, have all the tools they need in order to achieve their objectives. The best that we can do on the commercial sector is do good enough of a job creating and implementing our security programs where we hope that we offer just too difficult of a target. So it suddenly becomes not profitable for those bad actors to target us. Go bother someone else that has less defense. It's, it's a bit discouraging because you would think at this moment in time, 2020, we would have a more national strategy and we would see the U.S., step in and provide perhaps a bit more coverage uh, for companies that, that are hosted here, that only do business here. Ultimately, that will catch up. I'm, I'm convinced of that. It just is taking a bit longer than I had hoped. Cyber criminals do not rest. They capitalize. It is big business, and that is the only business. If you look at where a lot of these, especially the C2 networks that are really, you know, in the command and control driver's seat on a, on a lot of these larger either botnet campaigns or phishing campaigns or even um, application exploit campaigns. They're coming out of countries that have virtually no economy in place. So there are very little to no alternatives for earning a living other than, you know, becoming a TikTok star, you know, maybe becoming a YouTuber or mm, I'm going to peruse the internet and see if I can't drop this ransomware exploit kit and maybe uh, pry out anywhere from $300 from 
some retired U.S. citizen who's got a computer up in Florida who wants their pictures back to, you know, a mid-sized company that maybe will pay $2 million to get their financial system back online. Now, are you talking about the basement hacker with the hoodie on and the lights off? I, I guarantee you they're not sitting in their basement. They're well organized. <laughs> yeah, it's a team of people and they run it like a corporation. Yeah, that's the other, when we talk about like, at least when we talk about the general US public understanding of these things, they are still thinking this is some guy in some basement somewhere. And that is not the case. The sophistication that is behind a lot of these campaigns is uh, very mature. Remember when we talk about just the term legal, we're bound by the country that we live in. Yet the internet is, you know, worldwide. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what we view as a legal activity, other countries have deemed, oh, that's an opportunity. U.S. companies are number one target. Um, but that is because the U.S. is still the largest economy in the world. So these attackers are going after where the money is. You know, if you don't have the money or you don't know how to pay in Bitcoin, you can call their help desk. And they'll be <laughs> That's right. Happy to help they've, you. Got a, they've got a whole customer support team <laughs> ready to get on the call with you. That's right. You got it. So can you talk to me a little bit about strategies that you would direct toward cybersecurity sales reps or cybersecurity solutions providers to help them reach the right customer and what's needed to achieve a higher success rate in their position? I've got lots of advice for sales folks. Um, it's a hard job. So first and foremost, unlike perhaps other potential customers, potential clients, let me start out by saying that salespeople have a very difficult job and they are needed because uh, without their persistence, new, exciting, interesting products and services don't get socialized at the rate that we need them socialized. But with that said, unfortunately, I get a barrage. I get overloaded with cold reach outs and LinkedIn is probably the worst place to go. And cold sending me an email is probably the second worst thing to do. However, the advice that I can give is before you approach any potential customer, you need to understand enough about their business to know, are they a leading adapter or are they a lagging adopter? And what I mean by that is I work for a financial service company and financial service and insurance, we're not bleeding edge and we're not bleeding edge by design we really operate on a lot of efficiency, which means if we're going to make an investment in a new technology, it needs to be well established across just about all technology sectors. If you're approaching me and this is something that's, you know, not even finished your, your series B funding, I'm probably not going to be interested in it because I've done my job and I've got a fairly well-constructed security program 
And I've mapped out all of those core security services that we operate and maintain on behalf of the business. You need to come to me not with an additive, but with something that you think will supplant a piece of my portfolio that I already have in place. And I notice that that's something that a lot of salespeople really hesitate to commit on. If you were going to approach me at uh, you know, a virtual conference or through email or some contact way where you know you've got about five minutes with me, how would you go about making that approach? I am not sales. Oh, I would probably right. come to you from an engineering standpoint. All right. Fair that's enough. Fair enough. To, that's hard we'll, for me to answer. We'll, we'll skip that one for now. But <laughs> if you were sales, you'd probably come up to me and you would say something like this. You would say, Josh, I've got this amazing product. You got to check this out. It costs nothing for you to POC it. I just want you to see how it works. What are you doing next week? Let's set up a call and let's discuss this. And my follow-on question for that is going to be, okay, well, if I do that, what is it, what's the outcome that you think I'm going to get out of this? What is it that your product does better? Or what is it about your product that's going to save my company dollars if we go through this process? Tell me. Right. And if you can't, you shouldn't be approaching me. You either haven't done enough recon or you don't know enough about your own product set. You should be coming at me going, hey, Josh, company radiant size. You've got you know, roughly 3,000 users. You protect about 50 million you know, US consumer records. Um, I'm estimating that your costs for Splunk are X. How'd you like to save 40% on that? Come here. Let's, Let's get another beer. <laughs> now I want to talk. Yeah. Now I want to talk. Now we're talk. using the yeah. universal measurement in business is called the U.S. dollar. And so don't talk to me about value proposition if you can't talk about how we're going to drive efficiencies and savings. And I'm going to measure you on that. So remember, even though you're offering your software or your POC service, quote unquote, for free, it's costing me money to run a POC. I've got to build these servers. I got to, I got to get cycles from the team. We've got a lot of work to do on our side. I've never seen a POC that runs without you know, some significant attention from team members. And guess what? We all already have full-time jobs. If I'm going to shoehorn this POC in, I need to understand what the rough benefits are right out of the gate. And so yeah. my advice for those sales professionals is simply this. Know your product well enough that you can speak to those things. And if you're going to cold approach me, Look, take five minutes, Google where I work, check out what it is, understand what the business is, and then you should be able to run those numbers. You know, I'm a big fan of rate cards and I'm a big fan of something called slab pricing. So nothing frustrates me more than when I get 
you know, let's say the third or the fourth meeting with a potential new, net new vendor who's really trying to sell me something. And I go, well, how much does this thing cost? And they never want to, it feels like I'm going to the auto dealership, right? They never want to give me the price. And whenever I go, why can't you give me a price? And they go, well, we need to understand how big your network is. I can't get you a proper quote. And I go, no, no, no. Just give me the slab pricing. So if it's user defined, what's your cost for one to 5,000 users? And then what's my discount after 5,001 users? If it's endpoint, what's my cost on one to 5,000 endpoints? If you're representing that company, you should have those figures at the ready. I would never go in to pitch my executive leadership without knowing all the numbers right off the top of my head with about 95% accuracy. Everyone will give you squeak room. It gives a feeling of distrust if you cannot at least give me the slab pricing. Gotcha. I'm a big fan of a concept called teach by ridicule. I will teach you because I will ridicule you if we are not, if we're not talking numbers very quickly. I expect you to, if you're a sales professional, I expect you to know your product, especially like I'll give you some slack if you don't know some, some engineering details, but if you can't even give me the slab pricing, my, my question for you is then why are you a sales professional? Exactly. If you're trying to sell me this, you should know these numbers off the top of your head. I don't think that's only great advice for the sales professionals. I think that's also great advice for the organization. Yeah. It's, it's 100% with you. Our, our discussion will either, you know, if you're not, if you're going to fail on pitching me on this, then let's both agree. Let's fail fast together <laughs> so that right. you can get the rest of your time back and go hit up the rest of the schmucks that are in this meeting or in this, uh, you know, customer conference. I know what my budget numbers are inside and out, backwards and forwards. Like I've got all of that math. With a pretty quick discussion, I can understand whether what you're trying to pitch me is additive because there's some new threat that is evolving out in cyberspace. And I need to go back to my, potentially I got to go all the way up to my CEO in order to get a plus up in overall funding. And so, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to doing that. I have a great working relationship. Everyone at Radiant has been very supportive of the security mission. They, they really recognize the value that we deliver, but you got to arm me with some better information. And I'm probably not going to entertain a POC because again, even though the, even though these product vendors may think POCs are free, they are not free. There is a lot of work and a lot of cycles spent and we run lean as it is. I have, I have no capacity sitting on the shelf. Like I don't have a couple engineers twiddling their thumbs going, Oh, when's the next POC, Josh? I'm, I really have my, you know, I got nothing to do today. Like that does not exist. There, there are hidden costs involved. Yes. What from an investment standpoint, would you see organizations investing in because a lot of people are working from home and even after COVID, I see that this train's still moving. Um, I don't oh, think yeah. this is ending anytime soon. So what are the quick hits right now where you can see organizations taking control of that? It depends on what the work from home technology strategy is. 
And what I mean by that is Radian is fairly heavily virtualized, even a heavy virtualized desktop infrastructure. So about half of our entire workforce, I access my quote unquote desktop virtually through a VDI Citrix gateway. Everything from the gateway to my house is my personal responsibility. And because that VDI is containerized, there's very little risk to Radian from what that user is running at home. As long as we have our standard security suite, our endpoint suite installed, because we do install that even on the virtual desktops. And that suits us well, because again, we've got a lot of custom applications and those custom applications are hosted in a fairly traditional, you know, data center design. We've got a primary and a secondary data center that we operate and maintain. Those workers who have assigned laptops, physical laptops, those mirror the almost the exact same configuration as the VDI. It's just a question of whether they're going to VPN in or whether I'm going to use the VDI gateway uh, through either a light web browser or through a thick client that I've installed on my home machine. But for other companies, they may be born in the cloud, right? They may not need to reach into a traditional data center, in which case I think there's some opportunities to explore some of the zero trust technology. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of competition happening between Netscope and Zscaler where they're offering these, these really interesting models of it's, it's essentially VPN-less connectivity where they're pushing out their secure cloud boundaries and encapsulating those other cloud environments like Oracle Financials or Workday or some of these other, or Box or OneDrive, you know, it doesn't matter. So yeah, it, it depends on what that overall technology footprint looks like. Everyone is on the path to drive to lighter footprint, lighter agents, reduce latency, and reduce the need for broadband. So that's probably yeah. the most intriguing yeah. case. Everyone wants to be mobile first, and that means delivering a full UI to that user, potentially over only mobile connectivity. So it doesn't sound like there's been too much overhead needed in the transition. Not for us, but I'm sure Radian has some sales staff that are, you know, they were frustrated before COVID because they can't access all of the apps that they need to access. Um, and I'm sure they're, they're probably elated now because they're not so heavy on the road and they're able to access those broadband connectivity options. So they get a much fuller experience. Gotcha. Do you have a lot of workforce that's mobile? On our sales side, we do, yeah. Gotcha. Because Radian sells products and services to, you know, over 2,000 banks and financial service customers. So they need to be serviced just like, you know, any company that's selling products and services. Sure, sure. Has, has that service line remained as normal as, as it can be? Or are they shifting over to remote capabilities as well? I mean, at some point, you still have to well, have they, a face Well, they were always remote. 
Yeah, they okay. again, we've embraced a very remote we've all, we've had for a long time a uh remote heavy culture. Got it. Um because the nature of our business is, you know, real estate is a US based real estate is a very unique business. It has seasons, but no one can really predict what demand will be. You know, surprising to us, we've had a great business quarter because I think the estimate is something like 20% of people in the US have relocated since COVID. And that's a lot. That is a lot. You know, when we think about the movement of of people and families that are leaving the larger cities, so the top five cities, and they're and they're pushing out to either the suburbs or the exurbs. That real estate, you know, we get to benefit from that. Not to sound, you know, predatory in any way, but no, no, um, and a lot of that could go back to the remote workforce. I mean, you may have more yeah. flexibility now in being able to go out to the suburbs when before you were, you know, forced to live in an area that's more metro. Yeah, because you needed access to your office because, you know, perhaps there's a suite of uh, back-end office applications that, you know, you can only get access there. What would you advise those in the colleges and the aspiring cybersecurity professionals the best way to learn right now? Is it the self-learning path? Is it virtual boot camps? Is it online colleges? DEFCON, safe mode just happened. Is that still valuable from an educational standpoint? You know, I, I, I would hope that is still valuable. I think the traditional academic institutions have a real challenge in front of them. Academia has always been between five and 10 years behind current state. And that is an ex, that's just an accepted fact. Colleges take a long time to change curriculum. And so co-op students that I bring into Radiant, the interns that I bring in, when I ask them what they're learning, they're learning some basic fundamentals that have been around for a good 20 years. They're learning STAR principle. They're learning these information security concepts. But when I ask them about the tools that they use in class, those labs were probably written between 10 and 15 years ago. They were probably written by teacher assistant. They're, they're interesting, they're cool, they're fun, but I don't know how applicable they are to how we perform cybersecurity today with a full commercially supported, modern, mature cyber program. Uh, we don't use... Uh, hardly any open source tools in the work that we do. And I think the open source community versus the commercially supported tool sets, there is a, a, a fairly large divergence in capability. And I think for a lot of the students and a lot of the really young professionals, we got to figure out a way to leapfrog them. Perhaps it's even an OJT on the job training type of opportunity where we got to get them knowledgeable and skilled up on the readily available commercial tools that we do our job with. 
and I'm not seeing a lot of that. I wish the commercial companies, the crowd strikes, the Splunks, the Veracodes, uh, the Snicks would do more creating content and getting it into the hands of these universities so that they can build their computer engineering programs using a modern stack. Because I'm not seeing that. It's virtual reality. Simulate modern attacks in a classroom because by the time textbooks get printed, cyber criminals have already moved on to new techniques and it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have the time. I wish we did, but we don't have the time. And, and I think the other, you know, talking about, you know, the younger professionals, the, the, the folks that are making the transition from academia to the workforce, it's, it's still very jarring for them because when you start even a, a master's level class, you get a syllabus and you have your weeks like planned out for you and you understand when the exam is. That's not how business works. I don't have time to issue assignments to anyone on my staff week over week. Uh, my expectation is you're going to manage yourself. You're going to look for the areas that you can add value. And we're all going to agree this is the collective mission of the, of the department. And we're going to all measure ourselves on these agreed shared outcomes. We're going to improve these scores. We're going to root cause these issues. And we're going to develop some processes for how we tactically go about managing our work. But... Yeah, I'm not, you have to create your own work. You have to create your own success, whatever company you walk into, because no one's got the time to program what it is you're doing for work. You can't plan for a vulnerability. You can't plan for an attack. So why plan for an exam? Yeah. It's, I think that's a great way to approach it. And, you know, you have your fundamentals, but then there's also a component of critical thinking and strategic thinking that needs to play into it. And those are the things that I think got me to where I am. And I think mm -hmm. that makes professionals think the way they do. It's, it's almost a train of thought. Yeah. Yep. What do you feel like cybersecurity professionals need to get a better handle on holistically and try to defend against what do you think are the, you know, the biggest vectors out there that are going overlooked at this point? I think we need to get back to basics. Flaws, vulnerabilities are the single biggest attack vector and attack surface area. If we get a handle on flaws, flaws in code and infrastructure vulnerabilities and bad configurations in cloud environments. That is 98% of our job. To be a security professional is, that is not the sexy, cool work. It is dull. It is boring. It is repetitive. It takes attention to detail. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, when I discuss what I do for a living with non IT tech folks, 
they always are very complimentary. They're like, yeah, that's so cool. And I'm like, actually, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's really not cool. Um, I enjoy it, but it is not cool. <laughs> and so I wish we could give up on the, on the myth of the alpha geek. There is no such thing. No one can know everything there is to know. And if you find that your security program is catching more events than you are preventing it, you are doing this work wrong. Very true. That's one alert that you don't want triggered. Hey, man, as always, I appreciate your time, your insight, and of course, your expertise. But this is last call. So I have one more question for you. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? I was thinking about this question. Uh, my bar's name would be the half glass empty because I feel like <laughs> nice. uh, sometimes in the cybersecurity field, we get too caught up in. I call it the awfulization of, of the state of things. It's not that bad. We do have work to do. We got to keep it the glass half full. And then my signature drink, I'm going to go super old school. Uh, I'm gonna, my signature drink is going to be the Sin Flood. Oh, crippling. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. What, what would be in it? Uh, bourbon and ice. i'll be ordering that all night that's my drink yeah yeah all right chris this was a lot of fun thanks yeah man man, thanks for joining and hopefully next time we meet it'll be uh face to face uh at a real bar be safe all right thanks so much take care cheers bye-bye Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.